Blog Talk Radio. Pediatric Speech Language Pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. I'm so excited to be doing today's show. I guess that's how I always start the show, and I, I love that, that I can say I'm so excited about whatever we're talking about. <laughs> kind of rises to the top there, and that becomes the next show topic, but today we're going to be looking at early communication behaviors that are associated with language development, and we can use this information in two different ways. We can look at it from the negative perspective or from the deficit perspective and say, if a child is not doing these things, then he's at risk for a communication delay and this is awful news and this is something that everyone dreads to hear, certainly a parent. If you're a parent listening to that and that has recently happened to you, and I got an email like this from a mom yesterday. I'm not even sure I've answered it yet, but she said, hey, all this stuff is so new to me, I didn't even know that my child had a language delay. This is coming to me all out of left field. I didn't expect it. And the doctor had given her some kind of percentage that he was only performing 15 to 25% of skills expected for his area. So it sounds to me like she took him for a well baby checkup and wham, got hit in the gut with surprise, your child is not doing what you what he should be doing according to his age and what his other same age little babies uh, I think that she said that he was turning to so 24 months so she had no idea so if if you are a parent in that situation I just want to reach out to you right now and say it will get better and you started this whole journey with bad news and so I hate that that again if that's you I I so empathize with you and hate that you're put in this situation. So we can take this information that we're looking at today from that kind of perspective with just just from a deficit-based, your kid's not doing this, 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 and this. No wonder he's not talking, which I don't like to do. And sometimes we as therapists, we focus on that because we're called in. We don't assess a child usually unless someone has, there's an inkling of a problem coming from somewhere. You know, doctors don't just refer or pediatricians or unless you're just doing kind of a random routine screening. But most of the time that's how it happens. It is from that negative or that deficit-based perspective. So we could look at these skills like this this way today. Or <laughs> we could go sunny side up, which is what I want us to do, and take a look at these skills and say these are the skills that predict the emergence of communication skills and so instead of saying, no, 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 a child doesn't have these things, we say yes, yes, yes to the things that he can do already. And we look at those other areas not as glaring, huge, negative minus marks, but we look at them as opportunities to say, okay, he's not talking yet. She's not communicating like we would expect. Yes, this is a surprise. Yes, this is not the news that we would like to hear but at least I know where to go with this. At least I know what's missing. At least I have some direction. I don't have to wring my hands and worry about all the things that I know that he or she is not doing. I look at this, at all, again, on the flip side, as these are the things I need to teach my child. These are the things I need to teach this family that I'm working with, this family that's been referred to me if you're a therapist. And so I want us to kind of take that more positive approach. And I do think we as therapists do get 
sometimes more slanted negatively when we first meet a family just because of, again, the whole nature of what our job is. We're not seeing typically developing children. There is a problem when we see children. There, that That is kind of our starting point. But if we can just help a family shift as quickly as possible to – this is this is an opportunity here. Hey, I'm glad we're finding out about it now. Oh, aren't we so happy that you're finding out about this early at 18 months, at 24 months, at 30 months, at three. This is still really early. You know, the birth to five window is the most critical learning period for language. And, hey, if you are still in that period, that's fantastic, and we need to look at it like that. Now, for those of you, and I know we have a, a subset of listeners whose children are older but developmentally they're still in this window even the developmentally they're not talking yet so they are in that 12 to 18 month developmental window even though their your child is 4 or 5 or whatever I don't want to leave you out of this or 6 or 8 or or I don't want to leave you out of this and I'm certainly not saying <laughs> that's the end for you or or I, I, from that negative perspective Let's try to all shift and look at it like at least we know what to do. We know this area is a weakness, and we are going to do everything we can to get this child farther down that developmental pathway. And so I want us to take that more positive aspect when we're looking at it. And if you're a therapist, that might just be the pep talk you need today so that you can adjust how you give information and you can help a parent learn to pivot and look at these skills like that. And certainly if you're a parent, we all need that pep talk. We all need someone to say, try to see it from another perspective. Try to see that, yes, this is. I have some direction now. I know what I'm doing. I can take this information and make a real difference in helping my child learn how to talk or helping her learn how to communicate. So that's what we want to do with this too. Now this information is evidence-based practice, meaning that it's based on research. It's um, Dr. Cynthia Cress presented this in 2010. And so that's where this information comes from. And if you know about my book, Let's Talk About Talking and the 11 Skills Toddlers Master Before uh, Language Emerges, Before Words Emerge, my my information is loosely based on this. This is one of the sources. So I love being able to share this today, and I did a continuing education seminar a couple of weeks ago, and this is what they talked about with early intervention, and I thought, that's fantastic. I haven't looked at this list in a long time, so I'm going to be sure that we're talking about it in terms of of looking at speech or language development as behavior, as things we teach children. Now, here here's the kicker with this list. Some of this is a little bit more abstract than we like to think about it. So as a therapist, you need to know what these words are, and you do know, you already know, because these are things that we talk about. But sometimes it's hard to quantify it with a parent. It's hard to give a specific example of taking these kinds of behaviors and then looking at what is the skill that emerges because the child uh, has mastered this behavior. And so this might be a good thing for a lot of therapists for you to think about how should I word this to a parent? What is this big overall behavior that we're talking about? And then what skills, what measurable, identifiable skills are traced or linked 
back to this early communication behavior. And so let me just kind of tie it back to um, my work with Let's Talk About Talking is I took to skills because I think it's easier for parents and a lot of times even for us as therapists to look at something is is he using gestures, which isn't one of the things listed here with the 11 uh, early communication behaviors. But it's easier to look at that sort of thing rather than intentionality, which kind of leads us to our first area here. But you get my point. Sometimes if we say to a parent, how intentional is your child, or tell me about your child's intentionality, a lot of times a parent won't know how to answer that. They certainly know what it means to be intentional. They know what it means in their own lives to be intentional. That's when we plan something, when something is on us, when we have a real goal-directed uh, behavior like today my intention is to get my house clean you know they know that means I'll do the dishes and I'll vacuum and I'll whatever and it means that I won't answer the phone and I won't watch tv and I won't get caught up in social media and I won't do this you, you it, they know what it means to be intentional but when you say t- talk to me about your child's intentionality gosh they may just completely go blank they may not know what you mean but if you say something like, does he initiate? Does he, can you see when he wants something that he finds a way to get his message across to you? Is he deliberately letting you know what it is that you can do for him to make his life better? And so this is what intentionality would mean. But can you see my point here that sometimes these words that we use, that even though we're looking for this behavior, they're just a little, a little hard to quantify and so as therapists we've got to be able to put that together and the reason that we still want to focus on the big behavior like intentionality is because it will encompass a broad variety of skills intentionality includes how a child uses eye gaze how he looks at you a lot of kids communicate with eye gaze especially before they before gestures or words emerge you know they look at mom and then they look at a toy that they want and then they look back at mom and that's how mom knows they were intentionally using their uh, eye contact and eye gaze intentionality is also encompassed when a child learns how to use gestures he's pointing to what he wants he's letting you know or or even with early vocalizations like a grunt uh 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 he's like or a whine and he's letting his parents know, hey, I need you to pay attention here. There is something you can do for me. And so, and certainly with words, when a child starts to say baba to let you know that they need their bottle, they want their cup, whatever, you know, baba is kind of a generic term for that. And don't, don't, please don't send me nasty grams or emails saying, why would you encourage the use of a, a word of baby word like baba well that's because that's what kids say that's what toddlers say noodle talkers say and so again don't don't get caught up in a little detail here my point is intentionality can encompass lots of different nonverbal as well as vocalizations as well as verbalizations that we hear in children but again that's really as a therapist we need to think about that Think about how can a child show intentionality, even if it's using a picture system. What would a good example of intentionality be with a picture system or with a speech-generating device or uh, any other kind of AAC device or technology you would be using? He would, he would use the device. He would press the button. That would be intentionality for a child who is nonverbal, who is using AAC. So, again, as a therapist, it's important that we keep these broad 
behaviors in mind, and we know what they are, but we've also got to know how to explain it and then how to apply it to children who are at, who are at different developmental development is concerned. So that was the first one. That was intentionality. So how does a child purposefully communicate to a parent or another caregiver what he or she wants? So is that there? So that's the piece that we're looking for. And intentionality, again, is present just so early in language development with children, and it comes in well before words do. So if you're a parent listening to this and you're saying, well, of course my child's not intentional because he's not talking yet, I hope that you heard my previous examples with the gestures that a child might use or even something like nonverbal communication like eye contact or the sounds that he or she makes. It comes in well before words do. So when we have a child who's not really directing any of that to another person, he's missing intentionality. He's missing that 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 piece that really drives communication. You know, communication always takes two people. It always involves two people, at least. And so when a child doesn't realize that I can direct my nonverbal methods of communicating to someone, I can direct my sounds to someone, I can direct my gestures, which would be a part of nonverbal communication, I can direct these to someone. So so when we see a child that's not really connected to other people, or maybe he's connected but he hasn't taken it that next little step in that, hey, I, need you, I want you to do something for me. <laughs> this is what I need you to do. So that's the intentionality piece. A lot of times our little friends with autism are really missing intentionality. They may even be talking. They may be quoting movies. They may be singing songs. They may be counting. They may be just just saying a book that they've memorized. But it's not really to anybody else. It's not directed to another person. Those kids really are missing intentionality, even if they're talking. So be sure that you're sort of thinking about it in that way. All right, that was number one. Let's move on to number two. And it's a huge one. It's it's engagement. So what does engagement mean? It means that a child is able to connect with another person on that real uh, one-to-one level. So an example of that would be a child, when you look at them and smile, that they look at you and and uh, just return your eye contact. It's not just fleeting. They don't glance past you. They lock their little eyes on you, and they smile back. They are really, really into that interaction piece with you. So that's what engagement means. And that, that they learn to respond to you. They learn to stay with you. And, again, autism is the, the diagnosis that we think about that children have the most significant difficulty not only establishing engagement or establishing that initial reaction, but a lot of times just keeping, keeping it going. So that engagement piece, responding to other people, realizing that another person is trying to talk to them, looking at that other person when that other person is talking to them. Um, always, you know, a lot of times, too, I think about engagement is how well does he like it? Does he enjoy being around other people? Is he responding when you call his name? Is he looking at you? And so we teach a child, again, to be engaged. Now, how do we do that? Well, the first thing is you keep them with you. And, you know, I've already lapsed into talking about intervention, and I gave myself a little 
reminder before we got on the show today to just talk about these things, not really go into lots and lots of ways that we can fix it or our beginning strategies. I just wanted today's show to be about talking about these 11 skills because, frankly, if I start talking about intervention, we won't get past three or four <laughs> because I'll, I'll want to sort of focus on that and shift on that, and that is important, but today I just want to get through this. So let's just keep it to what this, what the behavior is, how it looks, so give you lots and lots of examples so that you can recognize it, why it's important to language development, and maybe in a different show we'll talk about how we can get some of this going. But responding to other people so, so important, and it's, a, it's what engagement really means. So if you're asking a parent, if you say to a parent, how engaged is your child? Again, a lot of parents won't know exactly what that means. So you talk about eye contact. You talk about does he respond to his name when you call him. You say, how does he listen to you? How does he play little games with you? Like, you know, and, and you may not even lead them. You may say, tell me about some little games that you play. What are some little games that you play? Now, if you're a parent and you're hearing this and you think, uh-oh, <laughs> there's no games that we play. Again, we're not going to try to get into intervention, but this is how we work on it, and this is the positive part of that. You realize, gosh, no wonder my child isn't communicating very well or talking with me very much yet because he's not really engaged. He doesn't stay with me. He seems to avoid other people. He seems to run away when other people try to get him to really talk to them and listen to what they are saying to him. And so you would know, okay, engagement's where I start with my child. I'm going to learn how to learn the things that I can do that help him want to stay with me. Does he like it when I play real physical games with him? Does he like it when I sing? Does he enjoy looking at me? Just Does he look at me better when I'm straight across from him versus when I try to talk to him from across the room? What what are our best times? When is he most into me? <laughs> when is he is it easier to maintain his attention with me? When does he seem to love being with me? So then you figure those things out, and then you just do those things more and more and more and more and more, and that's how we work on the engagement piece. But again, that's that's a big foundation for communicating. When we have children that are disconnected, when we have children that seem to be want to want to do their own thing, and again, this might be a kid who's not talking at all. But I gave the previous example of a child who might be echolalic or just repeating what he or she has previously heard, you know, from a conversation with you or from a book or from a movie or from a YouTube video. They're just parroting that back. And, again, there's not really any engagement there. They're just, as um, a person might say, talking to talk. They're not really directing that to another person. They're not engaged. They're not demonstrating that that um, piece that they know that they are talking to you. And, again, that would be uh, if we look at kids who – randomly vocalize or randomly just look around the room but don't really stay focused on another person, particularly when that other person is trying to talk to them. Engagement is the piece that's missing. So that would be the communication behavior that we would know that we need to target before we're going to make any headway with helping a child learn how to communicate and how to talk. All right, the third behavior that we see in children that are pre-intentional communicators or children before they really, really learn how to uh, talk. Pre Pre-communicators would be anticipation. Now, anticipation is expecting the way that things happen. 
So you might think about this, what you might say to a parent here, instead of saying, you know, how does your your child anticipate activities, that may be too broad and too general and they may not know what you mean. So you would say, how? what does he like, what are some things he likes, and then you would ask a parent, how does he react when he knows that that's about to happen? When you tell him or when you show him, let's say that he has a favorite toy. Let's say he loves balloons. And you know that when you go in the grocery store over in the floral section, <laughs> he knows the helium balloons are there. And you start walking over, what does he do? Does he anticipate that he's about to see that balloon? Does he get excited? Can you see him looking at that balloon or looking for the balloons like, I know I'm about to see it. Here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. That piece is really, really important. And, again, one of the most predictive things that we can look at, especially with children who have red flags for autism, is they have a very low anticipation rate. So even if it's something they really, really like, sometimes it's hard to judge their uh, fondness for something. Or parents might say, you know, he doesn't even really act like he likes toys. Or I can't get him interested in very much of anything. He seems to just want to walk around the house pretty aimlessly. Or on the other end of that energy level, a parent might say, he doesn't slow down at all for anything. He's just a bundle of energy from the time he gets up until the time he goes to bed. And I it, I can tell him, let's go outside, but he doesn't. He loves outside. I can tell him, let's go take a bath. He loves his bath. But I cannot ever seem to get him to know what I'm talking about and get him to want to do it. And that's a problem with anticipation because, one, he doesn't, again, comprehend what you are trying to show him or tell him. But really, really, it's beyond that. It's that motivation piece, that anticipation piece. And that's really, really important because that's an important part of childhood. It's an important part of adulthood <laughs> for us to know what's going to happen next and then get excited about it. Or, on the other hand, anticipation with we have some negative anticipatory behaviors as well if we know we have a dental appointment coming up you know oh dread it don't really want somebody in my mouth like that but at the same time that's a really really important part of uh, life and it's certainly an important part of children developing their communication skills showing that they understand what's about to happen next they've retained that information it's really a cognitive skill it's really a skill, and it, along with, coupled with an emotional skill, and it kind of folded into this communicative realm. But at the same time, they remember what's happened when this set of events or when these objects were present before. They're recalling how much they liked it or hated it. <laughs> but those memory skills are there, and that's an important part of cognition too. So lots of these things are, are kind of uh, interlap or overlap or interchange, uh, they're interconnected with other kinds of skills. And that's why it's so hard for parents to sometimes identify these things. And that, frankly, it's so hard for therapists to explain it sometimes because it does seem like it's overlapping so many other skills or so many developmental domains. And that's all right. And that's why you just talk about it and give parents really good examples or ask really specific questions so that they understand what you're talking about. Anticipation, I think, is most readily measured by how a child reacts when he sees a toy, an object, or an adult. So think about an infant 
to, uh, let's say, a six-month-old whose mom has been away at daycare, or mom has been away at work and he's been at daycare all day. What happens when mom comes to the door at daycare and he sees her face? He lights up. He gets so excited because he sees her and he knows, oh, she's back. And he, he anticipates that she's going to come scoop him up and he can smell her and feel her, and he's been away from her for eight or nine hours, and he's just, again, so excited about that. And that's the whole anticipatory reaction. Same thing, we talked about the toy, gave the negative example of the little boy that you might say, you know, do you want to go see the, or let's use an object, do you want to go see the fish? Let's say that there's an aquarium at the pediatrician's office, and mom wants to get him out of the, SUV and into the office. So she's talking about the fish in the doctor's office. And and normally that we know that a child has reacted positively positively to that in the past, would hear mom say that and connect that and get excited about wanting to go in and seeing the fish. And then when he sees the fish from the door, boy, he can hardly wait for mom to get his jacket off before he's across that room looking at the fish in the aquarium. So think about that. Think about how important anticipation is and think about how we can look at that with children and the things that we can ask parents. And so what, and I can't, gosh, I just have to just, probably put my hand over my mouth to keep me from talking about what are some things we can do to get anticipation going. But basically it's to show a child things that we and use things and expose a child to lots of different activities and toys and events and people that we know that he or she is going to like and help rev that little system up so that they can start to anticipate. I've mentioned autism a lot, but even children who have, or especially children who have diminished uh, cognitive, or let's just say cognitive delays instead of me trying to stumble all over my words here. So a child who is having some known difficulty learning and processing information Sometimes we really have to go out of our way to get that anticipation behavior established. Sometimes our little friends who have such low arousal levels, and again, this is usually because there's a medical condition and or a neurological difference that's already established. You know, We don't really say brain damage anymore, but if you want to think about it in that way as a parent to help you understand it, that's certainly a way that might make a little more sense to you. But sometimes we really, really have to just have so much repetition with an activity or with an event or with a person that a child really, really, really has to have just repeated exposure before he or she begins to anticipate what will happen next. And so that's just what we know. That's just their learning style. That's certainly something we can do. All right, so let's not get too caught up with with strategies. Hopefully we can talk about these things in a different show. But that was the third behavior, anticipation. So, so far we've had intentionality, we've had engagement, we've had anticipation, and the next one is reciprocity. Now, there's hardly a parent that you will treat as therapist who will be able to give us great definitions or, or great examples of reciprocity unless we use the words taking turns. How does he take turns doing things with you? How does he get that back-and-forth communication going? So you'll usually have to talk to a parent and give them some examples. So how does he repeat you when it gets a response from you? So it might be a game like blowing raspberries, like 
will a child sit and do that back and forth with you? Now, once children get to be older, they're certainly not going to want to participate in those kinds of games because they've had so much practice with it and they're kind of beyond that. But any child who's in that, say, you know, one, two, three-year-old developmental range, that is just one of the best things you can do to really even assess turn-taking skills because it's a pretty easy play sound to get going. Kids usually or infants usually begin to do that. It, you know, six to nine months they're able to blow that raspberry, sometimes even earlier than that. Most of the time if things are moving along, they can. But will they do that little back-and-forth thing with you? It doesn't even have to be a vocal behavior either or behavior they do with their mouth. It might be something like giving five. Will they do a game of give me five back and forth with you? Will they repeat a gesture, uh, meaning can you bang on a table? Will they try to copy that behavior from you too? And this really does encompass imitation, which is such an important early communicative skill. And it's not on this list, but certainly this is where we would fold that skill in. So how does a child take turns with you? How does he participate in those extended back and forth exchanges? Now, a game like Give Me Five, sometimes a kid might do that one time and then boom, he's gone, he's off. We really need to look for more prolonged examples of that. So will a child stick with it? So is he engaged <laughs> while he's demonstrating reciprocity? And, boy, that's a lot of words. That's, that's just a, a really kind of fancy way or an over-the-top way of explaining how long will he sit with you while you do a good turn-taking game. And sometimes parents, when you say turn-taking, they automatically think you're talking about a board game or something a lot more complicated than what we're talking about with toddlers. And so be sure as a therapist that you're explaining that to a parent. If you tickle a child, or, or tickle might not be the best example, but if you, let's say you, I, I like to play a little game too with kids and we all do this kind of silly stuff where we pretend like we're getting their nose or we, you know, honk their nose. Will he try to do it back to you? We see a lot of examples in reciprocity with play. If you give, a, if let's say that you're playing with a baby doll with a child and you show the, the child how to brush the baby doll's hair, one of the most just one of the earliest, most consistent things that I've seen toddlers do in my 25-year career is when I give them a hairbrush they and brush their hair first or brush a doll's hair first, they undoubtedly want to brush my hair. And so that back-and-forth kind of turn-taking that you see, uh, just a lot of times a kid will be drinking from his sippy cup and then he wants you to drink too. That's a great example of not only engagement but reciprocity where he wants to do this back and forth with you. So look at those little games. Look at examples of that, especially in play and especially with people that they know really, really well. A lot of times children will have a little trick that makes their parents laugh and so they want to do that over and over. I mean, dozens of times they'll get that little game going. So let's say a child likes to lift up his shirt, and he wants mom to get his little tummy while he's lifted his shirt. That's a great example of reciprocity where he comes, he raises that shirt up, he expects you to get his little belly there, you do it, and then he does it again. And then you do, you tickle him or grab him or whatever you're doing again. And then he does it again, and then you do it again. So it's, see, it is that that exchange there, that going back and forth where he does his part, you do his part, you do your part. He does his part, you do your part. part. That back and forth with you. So 
think about that and think about how you can get some of those little games going. I've given you a lot of examples of those. And, again, intervention's not our, our focus here, but I don't want to leave you hanging, especially if you're a parent, if you're not sure. You think, aha, there's something my child who's not talking can't do yet. This is something I can work on today. And, yes, it is. You just heard lots of those examples. So turn-taking is super, super important. And why is turn-taking so important to language? This is how conversations begin. So children never begin anything speech-language-wise with the verbal behavior. They always begin it non-verbally first. So before a child can take turns with you talking back and forth in conversation, he has to do that non-verbally. And if you, as a parent, or, hang on to that. Think about every single thing I want him to do with talking. I've got to see it in some way as a nonverbal behavior first. As a therapist, that's a great way for you to explain why we work on more than talking. And so if you have a parent that is just hyper fixated on, we haven't heard any words, isn't this speech therapy? Aren't you supposed to teach them how to talk at some point? And they're getting very frustrated that you aren't working on words, that you're still back here working on play skills working on early gestures, working on early imitation, that's something you can say. You can say everything that happens verbally or vocally, I've got to see it non-verbally first. And when they argue, when a parent might argue or balk at that, you say, that's just how it is. That's just established. This is kind of like the sky is blue and the grass is green. It's just one of those assumptions, one of those truths that we know we have to do first, and so it is a really good way to, to explain that, that that's why we work on some of these other things because they're missing reciprocity. They're missing the turn-taking piece, and he, we will never get to the point that a child understands what you're saying in, in conversation and responds to you and will have those nice, long conversations with you unless we see it here at the nonverbal level first. All right, so that was our fourth behavior, reciprocity. Our fifth one is affect. So what is affect? Well, affect is showing and sharing emotions or reactions. So here we're really looking at a range or we're really looking at a difference. So is he happy? Does he show pleasure when you play? The easiest way to think about this is when a parent plays a little game. So they do something like peekaboo or something like patty cake. Does a child enjoy that? Can we see that a child gets excited? So this is sort of back and sort of overlapping with the anticipation piece where the child knew what to expect, knew what would happen next. But this, again, is affect. Can he demonstrate happiness, sadness, disappointment, uh, does he con try to convey those emotions? And here's why. A lot of kids, especially our little friends with autism and especially our friends with more severe cognitive challenges, really, really look pretty stoic a lot of the time. I mean, it might take a lot to get a reaction out of them. And we know that affect drives communication. So when a child is really happy or is really upset or is really uncomfortable or is just completely exuberantly joyful, that's what they want to communicate about. That's what gives them a reason to learn how to use gestures, a reason to learn how to use their picture system, a reason to learn how to jabber away and eventually learn how to talk using words. So that affect piece. So do we show, does a child show 
a range of emotions. Now, the next piece of that super, super important important it's the sharing piece so we've talked about this a lot already with reciprocity and with engagement and with intentionality there's always that piece of how does this behavior look when the child is purposefully demonstrating it in order to get someone else's attention or hook somebody else in with what they need you to do or what they want to share with you. And so that sharing piece is really, really important too. You know, joint attention is how I think about this and how I link this in. It's really, really important that a child isn't just in his or her own little world when they are playing with a toy or when they are really doing anything. We want them listening to you. We want them responding when you demonstrate an emotional reaction or just a run-of-the-mill everyday message that you may be trying to communicate to them. But we want them, again, super aware that they are with you and that you two are experiencing the same activity. And so this is why without affect, a lot of times kids are, again, just doing their own thing. And so we want to be sure that that joint piece is there, that that sharing and shifting, and that's a big part of this too is a lot of times, well, let's not, let's wait, let's save that because that's not really related to affect. So affect is really the emotional range. Now some parents, when you talk about that, they'll say, oh, yes, he can pitch a fit. Oh, he has such horrible temper tantrums. And they think they, they do kind of, you know, look at the pendulum swings there. He's... They'll want to focus on, oh, yeah, he's demonstrating a lot of affect here because he can get really, really mad. That's not really what we're talking about. And and actually, sometimes that really is a a really big red flag for children with autism. And it's really a differentiating factor, too, between autism and other kinds of language delays or kids who have just those extreme, intense overreactions and just extreme hypersensitivity to... Uh, what's going on in their environment. They just have that, it's something that a typically developing two-year-old might cry a little bit about or fuss a little bit about. A child who really demonstrates those just over-the-top reactions and you can't get them to move on. You know, A child who, that might take 45 minutes to calm down from uh, scraping his knee or from getting a toy removed, and you just cannot get him redirected. Even if you give him, give him something else he likes, it just takes forever for him to calm down and move on. That's a big red flag. So we can look at this affect kind of in that way too. It sort of sounded like at the beginning when we're looking at affect that we're just thinking about does he engage, is he happy? Is he showing that pleasure? Is there a difference in an emotional reaction when he sees a person or something he likes? But again, it can be that other way too. So sort of think about that as a therapist when you're talking about affect with parents. But the big thing here is that they can show and share emotions and reactions, and that's the affect piece. All right, number six on our list. So far we've had intentionality, engagement, anticipation, reciprocity, affect, and and now we're moving on to Attention. Yep, that's number six. Attention. So what is attention? It's noticing and focusing on important information. I like to think about this as children developing longer attention spans because not only do we want them to notice when the doorbell rings, we want them to look toward the doorbell and then move toward the door. 
So we want them showing really intentional attention. So they are noticing when things go on in their environment and they are continuing to seek out the source of whatever uh, is making that sound or whatever's causing that visual thing that's changing. Let's say you turn the fan on in a room, you want them to notice that and to not hyper fixate on it, but certainly to notice what's going on. A lot of times we'll see this when we're playing with a child, especially in a therapy session or even at home with a parent, you are are showing a child something that you think is just going to be the coolest thing in the world, a new toy, and they blow you off. They just have no interest or really it's an attention problem usually, just no, it's no, no ability to even notice what you're doing and certainly not to stick with it. This is one of our most common problems when we're working with children with all kinds of developmental delays, but especially with communication issues. They don't stay with us long enough to really learn what a command or a direction means. So can you see how that would affect their expressive language? You know, we want them to learn to say a new word, but we can't even get them to stay with it long enough to hear the new word. And then beyond that, to stay with you long enough to be able to assign meaning so that when we say a word like Lego that might be new, that we think that they would like this toy, they can't attach the label to that block because they've moved on. They're seeking out something else. Their little system, for whatever reason, is driving them to do something else rather than to sit down and focus. So attention is a big, big part of helping children learn how to communicate when they are all over the place, when they are so busy that they can't sit down and attend. Kids are going to use a lot of times have a hard time learning how to talk and certainly learning how to uh, what words mean. And kids always understand words before they can use those words. Or again, that's called echolalia if they don't, if they're just rotely repeating you and don't haven't really assigned meaning to that, don't really understand that yet. But attention is a really, really important marker developmentally. Toddlers need to stay with an activity three to six minutes is an average attention span. And so if we have a two-year-old who just moves on from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing, and within, you know, let's say that there are <laughs> 10 different toys there, 10 different activities, 10 different things that you want to do with this child, and all of those things are done in about three minutes, you know, that's a big problem. No wonder he or she isn't talking yet because they have not found the ability to sit and focus and to to really, really direct all of their little being, all of their little brain power to that one activity. And so lots of times that is a a sensory-based issue, meaning that it's internal. And again, I've already used words like system and just their, their little brains, their little bodies are just on go all the time. And so again, it makes them, it makes it really, really hard to learn anything, especially how to talk. And so paying attention and learning to get their little bodies calm enough and regulated enough and get their little brains to settle down enough so that they are able to focus is a really, really big, important part of what we do as therapists and as parents to help a late talker learn how to communicate. I like this quote, and I've used it in nearly every 
therapy manual I've written, but attention is the gatekeeper for learning anything new. So that means before you can learn, again, math, before you can learn to tie your shoes, before you can learn to feed yourself, before you can learn what colors are, anything, any kind of new skill, you've got to be able to focus and think about it and stay with it. So attention is a big, big, big predictor of children who are at risk for a a pretty significant communication delay. If we can't get them to settle down and really, really attend, that's a big marker. And again, we're looking at that sort of from the deficit perspective, which I don't want us to do, but try to flip it around and think, what can I do to help this child learn how to stay with something? Well, first of all, do things that they like (laughs) so that you can develop that. Come up with more things that they like. That would be just really an initial strategy. Uh, But let's move on and keep going with our list. I I keep getting off with talking about our interventions because I'm just crazy about that and always want you to know where to start when you identify uh, an area that you need to work on with a child. But attention is a big, big important thing. And if you'll think about it as a therapist, as a gatekeeper, that I've got to get this attention piece established before we get anything else done, that's a good way to talk about it with parents. All right, the next communicative behavior that we uh, look at for um, helping a child learn to develop his communication skills would be exploration. So what does that mean? That means figuring out how toys and objects and familiar things in their environment work. It would even be figuring out how people work (laughs) so a child would know, hey, if I want my mom's attention, These are some things that I can do to get it. And so we don't usually think about it in that way as exploring for people, but I love it. I think it's an important part here of this list. Exploration, too, it it really ties into that attention piece. How long will the child stay with something? How long will he sit with a new toy? Does he start to pay attention? Does it get him to stop running across the room? That would be the attention piece, and then exploration would be a step beyond that. How well does he sit and try to figure it out? If, if let's say, you have a toy barn or a toy with a lot of doors and the doors are locked, will a child look for a way to get the door open? Will he sit and pull it? Will he push it? Will he try to stick his finger in the little keyhole to turn it? When he sees the set of keys, will he think, oh, this might work, and he'll try to take the key and put it in the door and open it. That's all part of exploring, and that's how all of us learn anything. So will a child try a variety of actions on the same object? Does he, does he look for ways to solve the problem? Is he sitting there? And exploration, again, is not something that happens when a child is running wildly around the room. You might think about that as exploration, but usually that's just movement-based, and it's not really that he's stopping to notice anything he's just running to run exploration would be does he stop and look at the bowl of easter eggs that you have on your table right now this time of year does he stop and look at the coat hanger that slid under the couch is that interesting to him does that capture his attention when he's opening a new toy When you are giving him a new thing to play with, does he sit there with you while you show him how to do it? Does he grab it from you and try to look at it himself and figure out, hey, 
this horse and this cowboy, what can I do with that? How can I make this man sit on this horse? How can I make this work? Or let's say it's a toy that is activated with a button. Will he sit and look for a button? Those are all great questions that as a therapist, when you're asking a parent, you know, talk to me about what he does when he sees a new toy or a new event or a new new situation here. Talk to me about what he does. And so we're always looking for how a child stays with that activity and how he really gets in there and figures out how it works. So that would be exploration. And we certainly want children doing that all day long. I mean, that's, that drives cognition. You know, that being able to motorically explore, meaning can I get over to it, and then once I get to that object that I wanted to see so badly, what do my hands do? What do my eyes do? So think about that. How is the child looking at something? How is he using his hands to manipulate the objects? Those would be good examples of exploration. When they're infants, they taste it. They, <laughs> they explore it with their mouths. Everything goes in their mouth. And certainly we can see our little friends who are toddlers who have developmental delays may still continue to mouth things because that's one of the ways that they're learning about that object. How does this taste? How does this feel in my mouth? Can I, do I put it in my mouth and then take it back out to look at it and then put it back in again? And, again, that's a really primitive or a really uh, way in infancy. We certainly see that when we have a two- or three-year-old that still uses uh, oral exploration as a primary means of gathering information. You know right away there's a huge developmental delay going on here. He hasn't really squelched that or that in a bit he doesn't have that inhibitory reaction yet he hasn't stopped mouthing things yet he doesn't know that he can do it with his eyes and his hands he's still wanting it in his mouth so those are certainly uh, ways that we can think about it and as therapist ways that you can explain to a parent what you're seeing and what you're knowing about a child's development without even opening a standardized test. You know, these are just things that we know from looking at the developmental sequence of how these skills emerge. So th think about it in that way, too. So that was the next one. That was exploration. All right, now we're at skill number eight. This one is mastery. Oh, let me go back a minute for exploration. Again, the biggest way to figure out with exploration is by looking at a child's play skills. So if we have a two-year-old or a three-year-old who is not playing with a variety of toys in appropriate ways, we know that there's a problem with exploration. And again, sometimes parents will link that with interest or with motivation, and they think that a child is just so beyond that, they'll think, you know, again, oh, he, that's just such a baby toy. He doesn't really like that. And that may be true, but not usually for that initial period. And as a therapist, here's a good way to think about it. How many times do we go into a home, if we're doing home visits, or if a sibling comes to our office with a younger child, even a 7- or 8-year-old is initially drawn to baby toys. <laughs> they want to ring the bells or push the buttons or they want to see what happens with those baby toys, too. So sometimes when a parent of a two-year-old will say, he doesn't like that, he's just not into that, that's too babyish for him, that is not a, usually a good enough explanation for what's going on because we know it's not true. Typically developing you know, early elementary school-age kids will play with the baby toy for a little while. So don't let that fool you. Don't, don't get off your course when a parent says something like that. Usually there's a problem with something else going on. It's, and, and you can link it back to this exploration piece. You know, he doesn't know how to explore toys. He hasn't, it could be a motor delay. 
It could just be, again, a cognitive delay. He doesn't know how the toy works, so he doesn't want to stick with it long enough to figure it out. It could be that it's related to his sensory regulation. He's just too busy to want to sit down and really explore a toy and learn how a toy works. But think about it in terms of exploration, and that will help you explain that to a parent a lot better. Or even in your own mind, own mind as a therapist, it will help you kind of wrap your head around, gosh, you know, this is what I need to do. I've got, I've got to really get him to stick with this to really learn what are some different things that he can do with this toy to figure out how it works so that he'll stay with it a little bit longer. But play is just the number one way that we would look at exploration or how does a child spend their time at home. So are they moving from, uh, are they staying with something, that attention piece, long enough to really, really explore it. So that's an indication there. All right, let's move on to the next one, which is mastery. And I think about this as problem solving. So how persistent is a child? Does he stay with, a toy or an event or an activity long enough so that he learns what to do with it. And we've already used the example from play, but we, we kind of started with a couple of behaviors back with attention. Will he notice it? And then the next piece was exploration. Will he try to figure out how it works? Will he do different things with the toy to see what happens that he can he can try to get the result that he wants to get. Mastery would be, aha, he gets it. He understands that to get the door open with the toy, he has to use the key. And not only does he have to use the key, he has to use the correct key. It has to fit in the opening. So mastery, how well does he solve the problem? When a child sees a puzzle, does he just throw the puzzle pieces or is he trying to fit the correct piece into the correct slot. That's mastery. And so you want to see that a child has enough repetition with something. Will he stay with it long enough to get the desired outcome? Or does he give up? Does it With playing with toys, again, we see this so beautifully in play and just can look at it as, as it becomes pretty apparent when a child has achieved some mastery. Can he put the ball in the hole and watch it slide all the way down take the ball out and put it in the hole again. That would be a good example of mastery with a ball toy. With a car, let's say it's one of those cars that you have to pull backwards uh, to give it enough energy or get the wheels going well enough to let go and then watch it roll across the room so the, the spinning feature it gets wound up enough with the wheels there. Does a kid stick with that toy long enough? Does he watch you? So, again, that would be the attention and engagement pieces. Does he watch you long enough to learn how to do it himself? And then does he sit down and explore it long enough before he uh, attains the mastery and he lets the car go and he learns how it works? So mastery, again, super, super important skill. And just the problem-solving piece. Will he do different things? Uh, will he try different ways of manipulating the toy or, or doing it? You can even think about this in terms of daily activities with something like a sippy cup. Does he recognize that the cup is empty? Well, what will the kid do? <laughs> he could shake it to see if it's empty. A lot of times you'll see a kid sort of try to take a drink and then he realizes nothing's there, so he'll tilt his head back even farther. And if he doesn't get a drink, what does he do then? He might take the sippy cup out of his mouth, look at it a little bit, shake it a little bit. Maybe he'll, uh, we want him to hand it to us, right, so that he is really 
saying, hey, there's nothing left in here, I need a refill. Will he just get upset and launch it across the room? Will he just drop it? Those are examples of mastery, too. Is he seeing that task through to completion? If he's, uh, we used the example of the puzzle before, but like a shape sorter, will he sit there and try the circle piece in several different slots before he realizes, or will he stick with it long enough before he gets it in the right spot? That's mastery. If he's playing with a bubble toy, will he turn the wand several times before it fits in the slot, or does he just give up, or does he stop and just eat the wand instead and doesn't even care about the bubbles anymore? That would not be an example of mastery. (laughs) He hasn't mastered mastery uh, with that. So think about that. Think about that in terms of uh, especially looking at a child with self-help skills or just with daily routine skills as well as play. All right, let's move on to the next one. This is skill number nine, and it's so important. It's self-regulation. So this is how a child learns how to handle his own emotions and reactions. We talked about this a little bit with attention and with affect, but can he move from activity to activity during his day without falling apart? Can he transition? After a disruption has occurred, how easily can he get back on track? And we talked about this with the kids who have the kind of emotional regulation issues and affect issues that they just fall apart at the least little thing. And then once they fall apart, super, super hard to get them calm again, get them back to doing whatever it was or or even to start a new activity that's more calming. So self-regulation is a big, big part of that. If you think about self-regulation, too, in terms of maybe falling asleep, do you have to rock a child for an hour and a half (laughs) before he'll go to sleep? Or can you just put him in his bed, close the door, and he'll maybe cry for a minute or two, and then he's out? Or a child who is so dysregulated in the car seat that he might cry for two hours once you've belted him in. He doesn't learn how to settle down on his own. That would be a kid who has real problems with self-regulation. Self-regulation is such an important part of learning because if a child is constantly crying and upset and mad, he is not in a state from a physical perspective or that little emotional perspective to learn anything. So it really doesn't matter what you say to him or what you try to teach him during that time. He's not going to learn it because his body is not allowing it. He's not ready So self-regulation is a big skill, and it really is linked to how a child learns anything, not just talking. All right, the next one, number 10 on this early communication behavior behavior list that we're looking at is speaking. How does a child, how vocal is he? Does he make sounds to himself, to other people? Does he imitate? Can he change his pitch or his loudness levels? So is there variability in the sounds that he makes? Is he using a variety of uh, consonant and vowel sounds? Do you hear all different kinds of noises from him, from things that sound like talking to things that sound like environmental noises? So we certainly want children to vocalize purposely, not crying, not just yelling, but we want to see a wide variety of those noises. All right, last one, emergent literacy. And this is relating to getting a child ready to read and write. Will a child attend to pictures in a book? Does he sit with you and notice when you are 
uh, reading? Does he like to look at what you're doing too? If the book is upside down, will he correct it? Will he turn it around the, the right way? And that's one of the things that I love to do in an assessment. I do that with puzzle pieces too. Hand that to a child to see, will he turn it the right way and look at it? Does he recognize how that picture of a familiar object should look? So super, super important. You know, kids don't learn to read when they get to kindergarten or first grade, even in toddlerhood. But let me just say, if you have a child who is not following simple directions, or trying to imitate some familiar words, you do not need to be worried about things like letters and numbers and colors and shapes yet. It's important to give exposure to those kinds of things, and it is very predictive. When we have children who don't seem to be interested at all in numbers and letters, especially as they are preschoolers, that is a big indicator of difficulty learning. So we certainly want to pay attention to that. But in toddlerhood, <laughs> We are always going to focus on words, words that they hear and words that they say, how's their receptive language, what kinds of messages that can they communicate. That always takes priority over if they seem to be interested in letters, numbers, colors, and shapes. But it is an important part, and it is predictive of academic success, even in the toddler period. So we do want to see a child looking at books with us and paying attention to those kinds of things, even if they're not able to count. You know, we don't want to see that or don't need to see that until they're already using a variety of other kinds of more functional words like shoe and book and mama and milk and yes and no. And again, following those directions and pointing to body parts and going to get their favorite things. You know, can you say to them, you know, where's your passy? And they'll go find it. Or let's go in the kitchen to get something to eat. Or isn't it time for your bath? You know, those would be much, much, much more important things to worry about rather than letters or numbers or anything associated with literacy. However, we do want to try to expose children early, but not to take the top priority of the language. All right, so if you're a parent, I hope I haven't confused you by those comments. <laughs> if you're a therapist, I hope it's helping you get your priorities in order. We're certainly not going to think about teaching a child all of that pre-academic language when he's missing very functional vocabulary, but at the same time it is one of those 11 early communication behaviors that are associated with language development. So it is something certainly to think about. All right, that is all for today's show. I hope that as a parent you were able to listen to this list and think, oh, you know, my child is so great in that area. You know, here were seven things that, oh, he has done great with, but these four, mm, not so sure. If the show went fast for you, and gosh, I hope you're not trying to sit and take notes with all these things. I know some of you more studious SLPs probably are because that's what we're trained to do <laughs> in our graduate school careers. But if you want a list of these things, you can find it at Teach Me to Talk in the post. Today is Friday, March 22nd. It may not get posted today because I have a big, big schedule and a big, big weekend. But if you're listening today on the first day that the show is released, it will be out by next week. And if you're on my email list, you'll certainly get it. It's a great PDF. I'm going to send you that link so that you can have these 11 areas. I think it's a super, super way to talk to parents about early language development. I do think you can use uh, information like this. And certainly my chart from Let's Talk About Talking is a great way to look at these 
pre-linguistic skills and help a parent understand why a child isn't talking yet and help a parent really, really fill in those gaps and really, really understand it's not just about saying words. All of these other skills have to come first. So if you're not using a tool like that, I hope that you'll think about it and can certainly use this list um, that I'll have attached to today's show. And if you haven't, if you happen to have the Let's Talk About Talking list, that's a great tool as well. All right, that's all for today's show. I hope that you just have a fabulous life between now and the next time we're together. And again, uh, thanks so much for listening.